Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby Podcast. Today, I'll be talking about my 34th newsletter titled On Dream Jobs and Good on Paper Relationships. This was a Dear Baby newsletter, so I was answering five different reader questions. I invited on a guest today to mostly talk about two of them, although we dabble. And I decided, since our conversation was so long, to split this into two episodes. So this one, obviously, is still a long episode. Um, The second one is much, much shorter, but it's just sort of, it felt like a nice chunk to break off because it's all about relationships and kind of those those moments in a relationship when you're deciding whether to stay or go. So definitely come back for round two if that's a topic you're interested in. This episode is mostly about workism. Workism is something I've mentioned in a lot of my podcasts. It was a term that was coined or at least crystallized by someone named Derek Thompson for The Atlantic last year. He wrote a huge feature about... Um, the new religion in America, which was around work and sort of centering your identity and your faith and really your whole life force in work and the dangers of this, the implications of it, the runoff, the strange cultural shifts it's inspired. And I really connected with this piece. It really changed or really challenged the way I thought about my relationship with work, and I've really been evolving my feelings on it over the last couple of years, so I was excited to talk to my good friend Catherine St. Sienna about this. Catherine is a comedian. She is also a consultant, a freelance consultant, so she's sort of been in the transition from working full-time in a more corporate environment to kind of following her dreams in the kind of classic sense. Um, we met last year and bonded over the fact that we had really similar parallel trajectories and just were interested in a lot of the same things. We almost started a podcast together that was about some of these sort of leftist ideas like workism and, and, and you know, choice feminism and neoliberalism and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then the pandemic hit and we both kind of were working on other projects, so it didn't come to fruition. But I was excited to bring her on the podcast today so that we could have our moment to discuss workism since I answered a question about it in my last newsletter. And I think that's about it. Okay, so here's part one. How are you doing? Oh my god, I am fine. Yeah. Let me, well, I'm pulling up my notes so that I can have them handy. I'm gonna pull up my notes too. I printed out your newsletter. Oh, you did? Yeah, I printed it out and I annotated it. I um, oh I also God. wrote notes on my computer. I'm like, I, I've been I've been prepping for this. I'm excited. Well, thank you for giving me your very valuable and important time. Oh my God, Haley, stop! <laughs> it's so I'm so happy to do this. Um, so what's up? Like, should, should we catch up for a sec or should we just jump right no, into it? No, let's catch up. Do? I'm trying to decide yeah. if I'm hot or cold. I feel like we should state for the record. That we almost started a podcast. I know. <laughs> so we're really I putting know. our idea to the test here. We really are. I know. This is like proof of concept. <laughs> Pressure's on. We actually already recorded an episode that's like gone to the world. Who knows where that is? I know. it's go- I That was such a funny thing because that was, we did that, like, when did we do that? We did that like a week before. You're kidding. The, the end of times or something. It was super, wasn't it like in February? 
It must have been. Like two weeks before the end of it all. And then it got really intense. And then I was like, oh, that podcast was dying. And so I was like, oh, God. Okay. Your other like podcast, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right. Not this one. Right. This one's thriving. This one's kicking. <laughs> it's really barely thriving. I love it. I was listening. I was listening to some episodes because I wanted to get a sense of the vibe. And it's a good vibe. Oh, thank you so much. I feel like I've kind of been enjoying that it's not really like a fully public podcast. Totally. Because it's not really focused and I'm not really sure. Like, I feel like I'm breaking a lot of rules in the sense that there's not really like a consistent purpose. There's obviously not consistent guests. But it's also not like I'm bringing in experts, so it's just sort of like my friends, and I'm repeating a lot of people, and I just, it's just chaos. <laughs> no, that's fun. I think that's like what people would want, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe for people who like, who like me. Sure. But, you know, who knows how big that pool is. You know what? I'm fine with not reaching a bigger pool. I'm like, I think the longer I'm alive, or the longer I work in media, the more I feel like... I don't want a big audience. Or bigger, I mean. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was reading um as preparation for the for the question on like being an adult. I read this I'm sure you've read it, but this piece by Joan Didion on self-respect. Have you read that little essay of hers? Oh yeah. I read it a long time ago. Yeah. And but you might have to remind me. No, it's okay. I'll I'll bring it up when we're like getting to that. But I um but she talks about how like people with self-respect, like, know the costs of things and, like, what, like, what things are gonna, I don't know how she phrased it exactly, but she was basically, like, they know, they know the cost, they know the price of everything, and I was just, like, damn, yeah, that's, it's tough to put yourself out there for, like, a huge group of people, like, it does come at a cost, for sure. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, it's a good way of putting it, because it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad for everybody, or inherently bad, or worse than other downsides of other jobs, like, obviously by any stretch it's just more that when you think about the kind of the benefits and drawbacks of any situation combined with your personality you can start I think maybe you're right that like self-respect starts to play a role in like making helping make those decisions of like well is this worth it to me yeah and embracing that everything has a downside and that it's we're just dreaming to assume that it doesn't totally I I think that was one of the things that kind of stop me from pursuing comedy earlier is I was like this could have this could be awful <laughs> like for me in so many ways like you're putting yourself out there you could look like a total fool you could like destroy your professional career and like professional relationships you uh-huh. could like you could make no money you could fail miserably you could like there's just there are all these like and, like, all those things could still very well be true. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, time, yeah. Only time will tell. But I was like, this is a huge risk to, like, do this. I don't know. It felt like... And I couldn't calculate what that risk would be. You know what I mean? That's what I was going to say, because I think... Or that's what I was going to kind of piggyback on, is that I think knowing the risks is helpful in making yeah. a decision. And I think sometimes not knowing them is harder. I think I remember yeah. feeling like, well... And also not knowing the benefits. Like, I remember when I was in my past career, I felt like, well, how do I make a decision on what I want to do when I don't even, like, I don't even really know what I want and I don't know what that would cost me. And so I can't be like, well, 
it's worth it for me to like take out loans and get this degree because of this because I just didn't have any of that specificity yet. So if the second roadblock is like, oh, these risks are really scary and I don't know if I want to take them, I think the first roadblock can often be, well, I don't even know what risks I'm considering or what I'm really putting on the line and maybe I don't even know what I'm shooting for and therefore I don't know what I'm willing to put on the line for in that case. So there's obviously like yeah. so much indecision and I think it's almost a good place to get to, to be like assessing risk because then at least you kind of have your cards on the table. And you know, maybe you're like, you know what? These risks for comedy are like really scary, but compared to like- Wasting like potential or like any kind of modicum of talent that I might have in this area. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that felt Yeah, worse. maybe, yeah, then you start to like, you start to think, okay, well, everything comes with risks. So which risks are worse for me? Like, what what is a life fully lived for me? Whether that has to do with work or not, maybe we should get into that later. Right. When we talk about workism. Well, yeah. Where do you want to start? Because I I thought your answers were really good. I annotated some of them. We can go in order if you want, or if you want. I know you said you wanted to specifically talk about good on paper relationships. Yeah, I feel like their workism is like the biggest one I want to talk to you about because cool. Um, I'll say this in the intro, but like I feel like that kind of these leftist ideas and how they intersect with kind of like our modern lives and ways of thinking and being online and in twenty twenty is at the nexus of like um, a lot of our interest in like maybe what some of our podcast was going to be about. So I yeah. feel like it would be perfect for us to talk about. But I thought maybe it'd be fun to start with. What are some of the habits that have made you feel like an adult? But before you say, yeah. <laughs> I want to I want to call out a caveat that I do not support the culture of adulting. Okay, that was my first, <laughs> Haley. <laughs> you literally took the words out of my mouth. I wrote adulting. I hate that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I almost like I kind of I really appreciated the way they framed the question, like especially the second part, like with how do you just get comfortable with not knowing, which I thought was a really kind of wise way of asking the question. Um yeah. that sort of pushed back against the adulting discourse. <laughs> yep. But I do want to state for the record that I really don't like adulting culture and the entire idea that just to meet, like, the basic level of responsible human being, you're somehow committing, like, an act of bravery. Totally. I, I actually kind of want to, I almost want to, like, drag in. the infantilizing <laughs> culture we live in. It's like, yeah, I mean, adulting, you could just say that it's life. I mean, it's like, I don't know, like, life is a series of very, like, boring things and tedious tasks, and, like, that's you got to do them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got to like come to terms with that. And yeah, like the adulting term, like the whole idea of like, you don't owe anyone anything. You know, like I was kind of like laugh. There was a tweet about some, I don't want to name names, but someone was like, you literally don't owe anyone anything. And I'm like, no, you do. (laughs) I mean, like, (laughs) yes, you do. You you do. Like you need to be a decent person. Um, (laughs) What is that? I feel like it's just like a, it's a girl boss offshoot. It is. Right? I didn't prepare on this particular topic. I have, like, two pages of workism notes, but um, but let's dive right into adulting because I haven't thought about it in a while. Are people still saying it? I don't want to, like, come out against an argument nobody's making anymore. No, I don't don't know if people are... I think that that term is kind of dead. I think it, like, was... It peaked in, like, I don't know, like, 2017, 2018, I feel. Yeah. But, like, yeah, I mean... 
I definitely kind of bought in. I was thinking back on like my 20s and I, I definitely kind of in my early 20s was so lost as to like how to create what felt like an adult life that I was like definitely reading all of these like books and articles about like how people do stuff and like their morning routines and like what are the boxes I can check that will like make me feel like an adult and I would like read some quote that's like no woman who takes herself seriously would ever not wear perfume or something <laughs> dumb thing and you're like I have to buy perfume you know like you just sort of are like sent on this like goose chase and I actually brought up earlier the the Didion self-respect um, essay, which is like a very nice short four pages, just to say that like, I don't, I don't know if there are any habits to be totally honest, because I don't really have like a great daily routine. And I feel like I, I don't know, I think it does all stem from self-respect in the end of the day. Yeah, I think yeah, cultivating yeah. self-respect is the only way to feel like an adult. And then the habits will flow from there. And like, what sucks is that like, you can't fake that. You can't fake self-respect. Like, you can try. You can, like, pretend. I feel like I've tried to be like, okay, I'm going to, like, you know, keep, like, you know, keeping my room clean, for example, or, like, having, like, a really organized, like, system at work or whatever. Like, that's going to make me feel super adult. And, like, it doesn't get to, like, the depth of, like, what I feel like I needed. And I don't think I got even close to that until I was, like, 28. I mean, like a year ago. Like, I think I yeah, kind of yeah. hit it like a year ago. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because I think that, like, tidying your room can be a form of self-respect, but the self-respect comes first. Yeah. 100%. Well, yeah, and I was looking at your all the list. I know they specifically asked for habits, and maybe I'm being kind of annoying by being like, I don't have habits. <laughs> but, like, I think I, I did write a few things, like, more detail on, like, what I think that means, like, have, cultivating self-respect. But I think that, like if you act like you like yourself, you can pretend like you like yourself and that can really help in cultivating self-respect, uh -huh. I found. And I think that like the habits really flow from there. And I was looking at what you wrote and I think all of the things you wrote are hallmarks of like what someone who has self-respect does, like apologizes when they know that they've done something wrong, like states when they've been hurt, you know, quickly and, you know, without like a ton of drama, like having an appropriate emotional response to the, to events as they occur. Like that feels like a pretty adult thing to do. Or like you mentioned, um, some of the ones you wrote and some of the things I wrote just like from like first blush were really similar. Like it's, you know, knowing and admiring someone else's way of life, um, doesn't mean that I necessarily want it, need it, or would like it for myself. And I wrote, being comfortable saying it's not for me. Like, I, I wrote my answers before I read your thing, and I was like, that's the same idea. I think, like, being able to say, like, this is who I am, and, like, well, that might work for you, it's not for me, and being super comfortable in that, even if that thing is, like, cool or, like, you know, statusy in some way, you know? Totally. I feel like when I was less sure of who I was and what I wanted and what I liked... I thought, well, I think that they look cool and they look happy doing that thing and they look good wearing that thing. Like, it right. almost started with style for me because I remember a big turning point in, like, my own style was feeling, like, not mistaking liking someone else's outfit for thinking that I should be wearing it, too. So interesting that you say it starts with style because I actually fully agree with that and I want to come <laughs> back to that point. I fully no, agree with that. Yeah, I'm happy you do because I, I... And I'm actually happy to talk about it because I think... I get this question fairly often and I haven't really gone into it yet in a Dear Baby. A lot of people have asked me about my style and I kind of feel like... 
I've just been feeling like I want to give it more thought because I'm like really nervous about being prescriptive. I'm still examining like the role of style and whether I think my relationship with it is healthier or like could be healthier or like what it even represents. So I feel like I'm like still on that journey. But in terms of just like finding what clothes I like in the most literal sense, I feel like there was a period where like I was getting it always from what looks good on other people and then it's always really disappointing because it doesn't look the same on you. It doesn't make you feel the same way. And you can learn that lesson like a hundred times before it clicks. Uh, I mean, I've, the the amount of money I've wasted (laughs) (laughs) on things that I thought would be, but I, it's so funny because I used to dress like a mom, like, like, and I don't mean like a mom. I don't mean like a cute mom. I mean, like I would dress like a, like I was in my fifties or sixties. Like I wore, cause I thought that that's what I had to do. Wait, by mom, since there can be all different kinds of moms. Corporate mom, corporate mom. Oh, corporate mom. Okay. Wait, so what is that? What differentiates a corporate woman in her fifties from a corporate mother in her fifties? Is this, oh, is it, oh God, am I going to get dragged for being anti-mom now? <laughs> Wait, no, oh I just want to. Cut that out, cut it out, <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> no, 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 I just, I'm actually asking for myself because I'm like, because there's like a suburban, you know, I think maybe people associate mom with like, oh, your clothes are really utilitarian because you're like getting, a, you're like doing things throughout the day so you're not thinking about your outfit versus like, you know, a certain type well, of Upper East Side mom is yeah. like a different vibe. What I mean is like, like long necklaces and like a backpack and like skinny jeans and like a a Patagonia you know what I mean like I kind of was like so maybe like a suburban suburban west coast San Francisco mom middle-aged middle-aged and I think I was trying to act more mature like through my because I felt so like young and inexperienced when I started working that I was like, okay, how do I make myself, or how do I get like taken seriously? And I had to wear a pencil skirt for a year when I worked at Bleep. They've done away with that or maybe bleep the, the company out, but like I, they've done away with um, those dress codes. But when I was there, it was super strict and I had to wear either slacks or a skirt and flats and like a jacket. Like I'd wear like a full suit pretty much every day. Wow. And I think like, my job kind of dictated what I wore and I was dressing just like totally like not what my age would imply. You know what I, you know what I mean? Like it just felt weird that I was wearing what I was wearing. I mean, I've replaced my entire closet since I've like, I don't think I own anything. (laughs) It's the same, maybe like two or three things since I moved to New York because I was like, Oh, clothes can be fun. Like I, they don't have to be like, I mean, I don't know. The West Coast is also really different. You know, you know this. Like the West Coast is like so deeply committed to like athleisure. Like if you wear red lipstick to work. Oh my God. Well, I'm sure that's not true anymore. On the West Coast, people are like, okay, (laughs) holy shit. They're like, like, well, someone tried today. It's like, you can't like try to like do something new. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I kind of enjoyed that in the sense that like in San Francisco, when I was in HR, I was just, I was considered, or people commented a lot on me being, like, fashionable, and it made me feel fashionable, but, like, all I was wearing was, like, high-waisted jeans, you know? And this was, like, (laughs) I don't even feel like this was that early That's all it takes in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like what year is this? It's, like, you know, this is 2013 or something, and so they would, sometimes they would call me, like, I think at this point people knew 
that high-waisted jeans were, like, back in fashion, but, like, not that many people were wearing them. Yeah. So it was seen as sort of... Or, yeah, by people my age, it was seen as, like, really trendy. And as pe- from people older, they'd be like, wow, the 70s are back, huh? And you're like... Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of loved it. I feel like I, like... It made me feel like I was this, like, fashion maven when if, like... If, if I had been in New York wearing that same outfit, it would have been like, okay, you're two years behind, you know? Yeah, it was such totally. a, such a, I kind of enjoyed that moment, you know, small, uh, big fish, small pond, like fashion wise. And then I moved to New York, obviously went straight into the Manor office and I was like, clearly the least fashionable, like by a mile. <laughs> I went through, I went through, I've gone through so many phases. I went through like a like, a French phase, like, when I first moved to New York. I don't know why. I was very misinformed. Like, I, I basically... I've always been wearing the things that I think I should be wearing until now. Like, I feel like until, like, maybe the last two, three years. Like, I feel like I've... I, I was wearing a lot of, like, espadrille-style shoes and a lot of, like... <laughs> a lot of, like, wide-leg, like, culottes or whatever. <laughs> like oh, I was kind of like... Yeah, I was like, that's my kind of vibe. Like, I wear that in, like, a striped shirt. It's like, whatever. I mean, for me, I think a big a big moment too in style was cutting my hair off. Like I I I had like a long ponytail, like a long blonde like ponytail for a I while. I can't even picture you with long hair. Yeah, I had it. It was really long, and I cherished it, but it felt very like childish. And then when I chopped all my hair off, I was like, I literally like chopped my hair off, broke up with my boyfriend of. There's all these topics are coming together. I know, broke up I with my it. my then boyfriend of you know four years. And then moved, flew, to, got on a plane and flew to New York. Like that was like, it was like a classic, like mid twenties. <laughs> I feel like this is how we originally bonded because we realized yes. we were really like parallel. I mean, I think you moved to New York maybe a couple years after me, right? Yeah, I moved in twenty seventeen. Okay, okay, yeah. So I think I remember us realizing the first time we chatted that we had like really similar trajectories. Like we had been living in San Francisco. We had been yeah. in kind of long-term relationships living with our partners, right? No, I wasn't living with Okay, them, okay, but... okay. So, scratch that. But we were, you know, in long-term relationships. Like, serious relationship at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Working in jobs that we didn't find that satisfying. And... Yeah, which I only, I only left mine, you know, <laughs> a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, but you did have a kind of epiphany as you moved to New York, right? I remember thinking that, like, we had both left what we felt like was an old... Uh, an old mindset, an old relationship, and, like, a city that wasn't exactly right for us. Yes. And had sought them, sought something different in New York. And then, like, you know, whether that's, whether that's come to bear, we can discuss. But that was the idea. I yeah. think we really shared that trajectory. Totally. I, it, and I think, like, once the bug bites you, you kind of got to go for it. Like, I, I, and it sounds super cliche, but I felt like I was... And I think I've also hit another point in New York where everything felt really hard. But I think the point the point that I hit at, like, 25, where I was, like, wrong relationship, wrong city, like, wrong vibe, wrong work, wrong, like, everything was just felt wrong. I think, like, a drastic change was needed, and I'm really glad I did it. Because I, I think sometimes about what I, like, how big that decision was for me, actually, to, like, yeah, yeah. change. Because you can just stay. I mean most things in your life, like, it's easier to keep something going, you know, than it is to change it. <laughs> you know, it's very easy to just kind of keep going down the same path. Yeah, it is. I was really proud of myself for changing it. And, like, to our earlier point, like, embracing the risk it, that came with it. I think I think the problem is that that's 
it's not, it doesn't feel always like a completely scalable solution in terms of just, I mean, if we get into the workism topic, which is like, um, the kind of follow your dreams narrative that's so central to like the American mythology or especially Mm -hmm. in more recent years, um, it's not, it feels like a lot to ask everyone in unsatisfying jobs to like pick up their lives and follow a dream. Not only does it require resources, but it requires like... And I'm, like it requires like a a sense of idea of like what you what would be satisfying. It implies that like any work is dreamy, or that work yeah. should be like the center of your identity. <clears throat> and it, I think this is something that I've been kind of mulling over now because having basically gone through the journey in kind of the classic sense, you know, I found my work pretty unsatisfying. I wasn't really, um, you know, I was engaged. I liked my team. I found the challenges kind of interesting yeah. and I was sort of, you know, chugging along, moving up, like feeling like there was a sense of forward motion if I wanted it, but I just felt really empty about it and I felt really detached. I didn't like saying what I did for work. I didn't like explaining it. It didn't feel like it, it didn't feel like it like matched my personality. I right. remember feeling kind of like ashamed of saying I worked in HR when I felt like I was just something different. And, yeah. you know, looking back on those feelings... I'm not sure the solution is, I mean, I'm so glad I did it, right? I feel like I'm right. one of the lucky ones, but, you know, a really small percentage of people can't make a big leap like that work or like, you know, a lot of it is luck and timing and um, privilege and things like that. So I think, you know, if we take that as a pretty common scenario, the solution feels like, well, why, you know, how do we like unravel these ideas like, what policy is supporting them and, like, what's making it so that people feel really unsatisfied and depressed with work, which is just a reality of life. Yeah. Instead of being, like, unhappy, change everything. Like, take on some debt. Take on a job that yeah. pays, like, $40,000 like I did when I moved to New York. Yeah. Or, um, it just feels like a lot to ask of everybody. It Totally. I mean, it's great for people who can do it, but... Totally. And I'm not... I, it's, I don't know if I have all <laughs> have an answer because it's funny. I think we're talking about a lot of different things. Like we're talking about workism as it relates to kind of a corporate job that's unfulfilling. But then there's also workism as it relates to creative work that you pursue yourself or something that's like a dream in some way, maybe. Um, there's sort of two different kinds, I think, that we're talking about. And also, it's funny, I'm in a phase of this that's very different maybe from the one you're in because I just this year decided to go for it. Um, I had been holding myself back, but also in some ways, like, as cliche as it sounds, I would say, like, sharpening the axe, so to speak, like, you know, going to classes, doing research, trying to figure out what I thought was cool, like, doing, you know, like, really measuring out what I thought that would look like, saving money, trying to figure out, like, how I would actually make this happen. And the thing that's so tough is like the heart, the further you, the longer you stay in a life that's unfulfilling for yourself. And I think there are ways to do both, but I'll get into that because that sounds like workism times two. But like um, the longer you stay in a, in a job or in a life that's really deeply unfulfilling for you, the harder it is to get out. So I know what you, I know what you mean that like, it's not sustainable or scalable for everyone, but I do think that being able to say, no, this isn't for me and exploring other options, even if it's just like changing companies or even if it's as small as like, 
I'm going to be, you know, really strict with boundaries in some way, which is so hard to do. Like, I trust me, I know that that's like impossible. I mean, having worked in consulting and like people just take from you, they just take and take and take like, like we can talk about workism and all of its, you know, brutal things. But anyway, I know I'm saying a lot of different things here, but I think like there's a lot of different things that need to be teased out with this conversation for sure, because it is like so many, there's so many angles because I agree with you. Like, it's not, it's not tenable for everyone to leave their their corporate job and and frankly I don't know if it's very smart because and this is a conversation I have a lot with my boyfriend like you know you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs like you need to provide materially for yourself and I think it's important to remind yourself and keep in perspective like what work is meant to do like the purpose of work this is not what it is today but the purpose of work is to provide for yourself materially right like that's what work's meant to do. You you do a job, you get money and you spend that money as you see fit to care for yourself. And that's how life works. Okay. So that's pretty narrow in terms of like the purpose that it holds for you. Um, Of course, work has not been, it's been branded as fulfillment, which it's not for the vast majority of people. And I think buying into that and unlearning that is very easy to buy in and very painful (laughs) to unlearn that like, you probably aren't going to love what you do for money. But I would say that that's okay. (laughs) Like the very, very few people at the top of their game creatively are doing exactly what they're meant to do and love it and make money from it. Like that is a rare thing, you know? But I think it is still possible to have a livelihood that you keep in perspective. And what I'm trying to do is like tone down the paid work, <laughs> like that I'm, you know, the, the like consulting stuff that I'm doing and ramp up on the creative stuff. But I think I need to have the pay, like you need money, you need to have a job. Like, and not, and so it's not tenable to say to everyone, like, go chase your dream. But I would say find a job that isn't horrible and do it and save money and then do the other stuff on the side if you can. But then again, that's a whole nother workism <laughs> issue. You know what I mean? So so I know that. I know that. But anyway, I've been rambling. But Yeah, there's so many things at play here. Obviously, I think like the volume of dreams or like work must be fulfilling narrative also like only applies to a certain class of people too. Of right? Course. Like yeah. what in that within that frame, like, we're taking for granted like, oh, but you know, lower wage work is just gonna suck ass. And, like, too bad for you. Like, if you can't escape it, it's because you didn't try hard enough. And, like, you weren't passionate enough about finding a job that made you happy. And I think... I'm going to read a quick quote. um, Of course. That mentions this. Oh, yeah. I was reading... I reread a piece by Sarah Jaffe, who's, like, a labor activist and writer that I really like. Um, She wrote a piece called Is There Such a Thing as a Dream Job?, it was actually sort of a review of a book by Mia Tokumitsu called Do What You Love and Other Lies About Success and Happiness. I actually just ordered this book, so I'm excited to read it. I want to, like, really dig into work next year. But um, dig into, like, the idea of work, in case that wasn't clear. Yeah, yeah. Double down on your, double down on your, on your workism. Explore work via work. Yeah. Um, the quote is, Do what you love is the ultimate individualist myth. One that normalizes a world in which most people have jobs that are just barely this side of tolerable, because if we are special enough, hardworking enough, and love the work enough, we will make our way to the top. The flip side of this is that those who didn't make it didn't love the work enough, or just plain weren't special enough. In order to maintain the belief belief that go-getterism really works, we must turn away from workers for whom it doesn't. Yeah. 
So it's almost like this entire framework requires us to block out those who are basically at the bottom of the like quote work food chain. And, um, and so it just, it leads us towards a debate that just doesn't even include them. Um, and so I think what I've been grappling with, and I kind of recognize that you're sort of, you're on the precipice of a big change. So I feel like I don't want to, um, I don't want to undermine what a big deal that is. And like, I do think, I think, I, I think you'll agree that like, something can absolutely be empowering on an individual level um, without necessarily being, like, the broader collective solution, right? Like, and I think that that's that's great. Like, I was really empowered by my move to a more creative job. Like, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I learned so much from it. And I'm just, like, so... I'm so much happier with my work. But um, I think I've been grappling with, like, recognizing... What does that mean for advising people who are in a similar situation, whether it's people asking me specifically for advice or whether like we're actually thinking about, yeah, you know, how do we get out of this situation in the first place? And does like having a passion or not having a passion or searching for your passion, is, is that even the right question? Because like I, right. I was reading some study about how like actually passion is often developed and that most right. people have a capacity to get interested in most things if they're like given time in the proper environment. And so, like, even the idea that there is this ultimate passion and I th- is maybe mythologized a little bit. And I think that totally. the reason their corporate jobs are hell could maybe be addressed a little more, too. You know, like, what if work, mm-hmm. work, if work weren't so central, if, like, capital wasn't driving all the decisions in America rather than, like, people's well-beings, then, you know, maybe per the theory by, who was it? John Maynard Keynes, who predicted in 1930 that by the 21st century we would have a 15-hour work week. Yeah, I think I've read the thing that you're pulling from. Yeah, exactly. Like He thought that in 1930, because of the progress of basically like technology, like industry obviously at that time, that we would, by being more productive, we would get to work less. Like if we were, right. if, you know, if productivity is, is all, is equal, stays equal, then we can just work less. But instead we've just skyrocketed productivity and made the richest people even richer. And so even though we have so many more resources because of the way we've like invented new things, none of that's being distributed across people and allowing them to work less. It's just going straight to the people no. at the top. And now everybody's working even more. Right. I mean, well, the drive of capitalism is that it will find any way, any like nefarious way to create infinite growth from finite resources. Yeah. So like people get crushed in that. Yeah. I mean, you are a finite resource, arguably. Mm-hmm. Like each of us is, you know, we all have like finite energy in each day, but the system that we're a part of will extract as much of that as possible and find new ways to extract more of it. I mean, you're right. Like productivity has gone up in, and I think like this is where some of the Europeans might have it a little bit more figured out. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, the French are like famous for not working like the same, in the same capacity as us. I feel like they sort of keep it somewhat more in check around like, look, like, what is it is, is it a 30 hour work week there or something what do, what do they do they like they have a whole month off in the summer it's like that's like culturally valued right and I think as a part of like the American 
I'm not saying the French don't work, but, you know, relative to, like, America, it's just a completely different approach to, like, what work. Leisure is more valued, right? Leisure is valued, exactly. That's what, like, if you look, I, I was reading about some some of the really, really interesting responses to Derek Thompson's piece on workism. I think he might have been the person who coined workism or at least, like, used it in this exact framing. That was the Atlantic piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so people were talking about, like, how in the past, like, the richest people were working the least, which does kind of make economic sense. <laughs> like, totally. It's leisure. so weird that they work more. Like, leisure was the most valued thing. And it was just about, like, how you spent your leisure. Like, basically, your interests made up your identity or, like, you know. Yeah. And, and now, I mean, America... It works the most of any, like, rich, similarly rich country, by far. Obviously, we have, like, no paid leave for parents. We really have, like, no systems in place to enable people to, like, live well apart from their employability. Right. Your health insurance is tied to your job. Like, whether you even can get welfare is tied to your job, which was something that Clinton changed in the 90s and that changed everything. Even, like, health insurance didn't used to be tied to employment until World War II. And that was just a fluke. Did you, did you, did we talk about this once? It makes me, it makes me feel so sad, like, how most Americans feel that they are, they deserve nothing. Like, it's like, you should, you should have health care. Like, people should have health care. It's crazy that Americans are like, why? No. And, like, people will defend not making it universe. I don't understand. I don't understand it. It's cheaper. It's like, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, we don't need to get into all of that now, but it's like, I don't understand it. Why people feel that it's, it's such a, it's such an ingrained thing. I think like in American cultural attitudes that like you get yours, you work your way up and you get what you deserve. Right. On an individual level only. Yeah. Yeah. On an individual level only. And it's like, like, when people are defending billionaires and stuff, it's, like, part of them thinks that, like, they're going to be a billionaire. It's, like, we're all kind of, like, it's, like, you're never going to be a billionaire. <laughs> like, odds are you're you're never going to be a billionaire. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then it's, like, it's, like, well, why would we, why would we get rid of billionaires? Like, it, it would make people less ambitious. It's, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it would. I think people would still you know, would still want to strive because that's sort of a human thing. I think people forget, like, I mean, and I think I'm thinking about myself too, because I've come around, obviously I've just like, as I've gotten older, I've gone further and further left on almost everything. On everything. I really can't think of a thing that I haven't, that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up liberal, um, like political liberal because of, because of like my parents are that way. And so like, I think that's where a lot of people start. I'm much further left of them now, but I think, like, it took me a long time to think about what it means to have rights and, like, what it really means. Because people think right. of healthcare as a luxury, but, like, they they think of not being murdered as a right. And so there's, like, I mean, I'm just making this up on the spot, but it's like, okay, well, you believe it's your right to not be murdered, which is what, there's a law against that, right? <laughs> or there's, like, you think you... <laughs> hey, right. guys, it's my right to not be murdered in this country. Well, so. I'm just saying, like, you don't think it's a well, luxury... And so that's where the government steps in. Like, the government is, like, they're coalescing and distributing resources. Like, we're all chipping in, and then they're protecting certain things. They're giving us streets. They're giving us bridges. Like, why wouldn't healthcare, like, your just general health, or even I would, I mean, obviously, I would argue, like, shelter, 
Yeah. These things, um, food, these things can be provide should be Education. provided. Right, exactly. On a base level to everybody. Because mm-hmm. we have so many resources, because we've organized in such a way that we should actually all be working less because we're really productive. But unfortunately, right. all the fruits of that labor are going to like zero or point zero zero one percent of the population. Or one percent, right. you know, some people like that term better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well it's it's funny because it's also an interesting I think you bring up an interesting point around like what do we deserve and what's hilarious is in a way is that like a lot of these debates are really they they kind of fall on like a really like razor thin edge. It's like, okay, so we believe that you are entitled to medical care. Like we do believe that as a country. Like if you are dying, you go to a hospital. They need to save your life. Like that and, and whether or not you can pay for it, that's later, right? Like the debt comes in later. Yeah. We believe that that's that that's true. Like if you're, you know, stabbed or something like you can go to the hospital. They will treat the wound. Right. So now what we're actually, we're not debating whether you have a right to that because we already believe that. Good point. We believe that like it's who pays for it. So that's a different conversation. And the same thing is true for education, right? It's like we already believe that you're entitled to 18 years of free schooling in this country. Yeah. Public school. Yeah. Right. Like we, we already believe that. I mean, it doesn't, it's not free, right? Like that we still have to, there's a lot of you know money that you have to pay to still be a student, but like, okay. So college, free college, people are like, what? you know, they like freak out about free college. It's like, we're really only talking about four extra years on top of 18 years. Right. I mean, it's not even that much of a difference um, to what we already have. So it's sort of funny to me that the, the, the debate really does rest on like who pays. It's who pays, but another way to frame it is almost like, yes, you deserve to get stitches if you were stabbed. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, really morbid example. It's like, okay, I should have choose, chosen something the better. De- the debate isn't, maybe the debate isn't even who should pay for your cancer treatment. It's should cancer bankrupt you? That's right. the debate. Right, right, should right. Cancer, That's really the debate. That's really yeah. the debate. Should it completely, and yeah. should college, you know, assuming we agree that college is useful, which like, you know, up for debate anymore. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but, I know. Um, I mean, obviously, like, extra training is is required for a lot of professions, but, like, obviously, I think a lot of people could say that they didn't learn that much reading there. I mean, I studied classical art <laughs> and ancient history in college. It was great. <laughs> and the whole, like, it teaches you how to think thing, I think there's some value to that. Like, you know, it's like thinking through things logically, but I agree. I mean, like, the actual practical knowledge is zero. Or the, or, I mean, I guess it, it totally depends where you go and what you study, but I just, I think the cultural emphasis on college as being, like, required isn't necessarily, like, sh- proven to be, to lead to jobs. I mean, if you look at the, like, millennial generation, it's, like, the most under overeducated, underemployed generation. Right. So right. I was just sort of questioning that premise. But, like, yeah, do you think that someone should go broke or, like, be completely bankrupt or, like, massively, massively, um, like, impossibly in debt due to getting cancer and... Right seeking out an education so they can have a job. It's just, like, it's so absurd, but, like, we've gotten so used to it. I think your point about Americans reminded me, I'm sure you've read this, too, but there was this, like, thing going around at um, at at some point about how, like, Americans are the most, like, they demand nothing. Like, they're so used to the way things are, and, like, and I, I counted myself among these, and I'm sure there are ways that I still am like this and don't even realize it yet, but, like, we're just so used to the way things are, and we're so used to expecting so little of government and forgetting that, like, taxes should 
bring something back to us and that like the point of the what the point of this whole system is that we end up just like not asking for anything and like we're just so happy yeah. with so little right that's what i was trying to get at it with when i said like americans expect nothing oh yeah exactly that's it's what like we really yeah. we really no 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 but it's like we really feel like we deserve nothing and it's a Protestant. It, it is, you bring up a good point. It's it, this is an interesting like tangent kind of off of the workism idea because it really we're talking about like healthcare as it relates to employability, and I think that that's such an important angle because to be honest, even in my own calculations in attempting not to uh, bring it back to me, but like do. you know, in my own ca- no 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 <laughs> in my own calculations of like do I try to go for something new and like leave the corporate umbrella i mean the biggest thing on my mind was healthcare. the the biggest trade-off for me was like okay so i'd be losing i mean i'm paying for cobra which is great i have good coverage but it's unbelievably expensive like the amount of money that i had to save and we don't need to get into it but like it's rent i mean it's ridiculous it's a ridiculous number oh my god and i actually i'm gonna say my number because i I remember when i was talking about this on my instagram people in other countries And I think I have some listeners around the globe. <laughs> around the Mundo. Um, who were shocked at the numbers. Yeah. So let me just say that I pay $600 a month for basically the shittiest health coverage you could have. Like, right. I can go to the doctor yeah. twice the whole year. Um <laughs> But if they do any tests or they, do, like, if they, like, if I do, like, a urine sample or they draw blood or they even, like, you know, they, like, literally anything beyond just, like, listening to my heart with a stethoscope yeah. <laughs> is, like, is obviously chargeable. And, like, I have to pay all of those bills up until I hit $8,000. And then... Whoa, that's a high deductible. And then some insurance will kick in and even then it won't be everything. So, yeah, and I'm that's on like top crisis of, insurance. It's basically crisis insurance and it costs me $600 a month. That's how broken the system is. Totally. I'm paying more than that a month, but the healthcare I get is good. It's like I have like a copay and like most everything else is covered for the most part. But like I mean, mental health resources are not covered. Yeah. So maybe it's not good. You're just like settling because that's how things are in America. It, I, yeah, I mean it's it's good relative to what my fellow citizens have. Right. It's quite good. But what my fellow citizens have is abysmal. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I mean, I remember when I was in grad school in the UK, I, I like, got sick or, I don't know, and I went to the doctor. And they were like, yeah, come on in. <laughs> like, sat me down. They're like, yeah, here's a prescription. Head on over to Boots and fill it. I was like, okay, 10, ten quid. <laughs> I mean, I've been thinking about this with COVID testing because it's like, it's so, it blows my mind to walk in. I mean, I'm getting a test that literally takes two seconds. I'm not taking up barely anyone's time. But the government has, like, created... I mean, even though the testing is still shitty and I, like, I wish it just was all easier and rolled out everywhere faster, obviously there's so many problems with it. But even the fact that it's free has been, like, blowing my mind. I'm like, oh, you don't need my insurance card? You don't need to, like, get on the the phone with somebody and, like, file paperwork to try to get, like, $10 off? Like, it's just... It makes you realize that we have come to accept so little... And, like, or expect so little and are shocked by, like, just the simplest of things offered by the government. Also just the fact that there's another set of money to be made with teeth and with eyes. So, like, you don't get those covered. (laughs) It's, like, that's, like, a separate thing. It's, like, that's, like, luxury. Oh, my God, you're right. I don't think I have 
dental or yeah, like dental insurance. is a whole. I mean, like dental is a whole thing that like if you don't get that shit sorted out, like you're in big trouble. Like I have, I have horrible. So I have really good health insurance through my old job that I'm paying an inor- an inordinate amount of money for every month. Okay. I go to the dentist and I'm like, hey, I have this horrible clicking. I won't do it for the, <gasps> for the listeners, but I have a, a horrible click? click in my jaw, which is like, it's, it's, it's absolutely, you could hear it across the room. It's so loud. What, ha- when does it happen? When I open my mouth really <gasps> loud, like if I'm like eating a sandwich, <gasps> or something. it's so loud. So I hate that. It's so, it's so painful too. And I go to the dentist and I'm like, this is a problem. Like, right. And he's like, oh yeah, that's moderate. Like TMJ, like you, you could need surgery later if you don't get that sorted out. I was like, okay, sweet. Um, he's like, you know, what really helps is a night as a proper night guard. That's like top and bottom. And I was like, cool. I don't have that. He's like, great. Um, I'll call you back if like insurance covers it. Insurance doesn't cover it. Of course. So I'm like, okay. So like, I'm going to pay now thousands of dollars for a little plastic thing that takes like four seconds to make. Probably it probably costs like less than $10 to manufacture that, to be totally honest. Like given the material, like the materials, you know what I mean? It's like, and like the time, what's the time? It's like the dentist takes my molds and sends them on. It's like, what? It's like, the thing, but, it's crazy. but they it's will crazy. cover surgery, which is why it's so backwards, right? And like, I right. remember, well, wasn't Well, that's because we don't have a, a health care system in this country. We have a disease management system. <laughs> like, it's literally about, no, seriously, like. I, 100%. None of it, I mean, the fact that doctors don't learn about nutrition at all is like a totally, I've been reading this crazy book about, um, it's called like the human diet or something. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's basically like, it goes really deep and like Dr. Weil, like, you know, Andrew Weil or wheel or whatever. He's like kind of a big name in like holistic, like natural nutrition as medicine, whatever. Like those guys are onto some good shit, you know? And like, we (laughs) don't, we don't, (laughs) we don't learn about that. No. So many health issues are totally preventable through just a balanced diet. And we just, it's just not a part of, medicine if there's no profit to be made there there's no money to be made there so doctors are a lot of doctors are basically meant to just dole out prescriptions you know it's like okay so instead of like changing your diet which would like lower your cholesterol or whatever you need to do they're just like here's Lipitor right yeah yeah and instead of getting like better food options we get like 700 kinds of cereal Yeah. And I I, totally, and I think about that a little bit in relation to mental health as well, because it's like, we're really, people are really taking a lot of, um, drugs for depression and anxiety and stuff like that, which, you know, if you need that, I totally understand, um, no judgment at all. But I do think that a lot of what people are experiencing is, um, very normal reactions to (laughs) the insanity of our world. And yeah. we are basically pathologizing it and saying, like, you're crazy. Like, you're, like, your depression is, like, a you problem. <laughs> and it's, like, no, it's actually, you know, it is it is the case that, like, people do kind of look at the world and, and they, they, are, they are seeing things as they are. It is, it can, it can be pretty bleak, you know? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's tough. It's tough because you're basically told to just cope. And then it's all your fault. And I think this gets, it's it your gets fault. back yeah. to like, I mean, I was, somebody, there was a quote that really struck me that reminds me of this. Oh, Aaron Griffith wrote about workism in the Times and, and said, perhaps we've all gotten a little hungry for a meaning. Yeah, I, as it turns out. Yeah, as it turns out. <laughs> I think like, I think it, it, <laughs> it made me realize like, or it, it just, I just thought it was really well put that, 
workism is an, is an extension, obviously, of, like, our increasing, like, move away from religion as, like, a central, um, yeah. like, force and focus. Um, you gotta, peop- I think the human mind wants to worship something. You know, it makes sense that uh, capital <laughs> has stepped in or, or work or, you know, whatever, fulfillment, personal fulfillment or something has kind of stepped in to fill that void. But continue, yeah. Yeah, or, like, the the pursuit of capital as identity, as, like, who you are. Like, right. you don't do a task, you are the task. Um, totally. Obviously, every, like, mode of worship has its problems, but something that um, Derek Thompson pointed out in his piece was that, quote, one of the benefits of being an observant Christian, Muslim, or Zoroastrian is that these God-fearing worshipers put their faith in an intangible and unfalsifiable force of goodness. But work is tangible and success is often falsified. To make either the centerpiece of one's life is to place one's esteem in the mercurial hands of the market. To be a workist is to worship a god with firing power. Yeah. It's a good quote. Yeah. And there's something else I was thinking, and basically... um, he said later, our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of a faith, and they are buckling under the weight. And this reminded me a lot of um, some of, like, the thinking that's going on around, like, monogamy. And I think we've talked before um, about Esther Perel, which I've mentioned so I've mentioned her so many yeah. times in my newsletter and on my podcast. But I like her work a lot. Me too, and I feel like a big a big part of her work is that a lot of relationships are suffering because we put way too much, we burden them with with all of our needs because we have a lack of community, and so we yeah community yeah, yeah and so I I I I saw an interesting parallel there where I was like you know we ha- we've lost a lot of communities like the world has just been. In- pursuing globalization at like an increasing speed and like it's yeah. alienating everybody and also technology is going at increasing speed we're all really um either at the bottom you are completely left behind or at the top in white collar jobs your work is increasingly invisible and intangible and you're increasingly alienated from the output of your actual labor and so it's creating this like um a, a vacuum of meaning that we are like trying to kind of fill with and we're encouraged to fill by the way by like the powers that be that like you know we can find meaning in basically an impossible situation and that nobody needs to step in and help puts so much onus on the individual it's like the, the the world as it's as it's organized today puts it all on you right I mean, like, tr- like truly, and I think that, or, or on your partner, you know, to bring it us back to the Esther Perel thing, or, or on, you know, yeah, you want, like, what, and, or on your job. It's, like, it's basically saying, like, I would say most modern people, who, and I'm speaking maybe, like, white, white collar here, most modern white collar workers, are, like, if they're in a relationship, they're, like, okay, you need to be my everything, my friend, my confidant, the person that I have sex with, the person that I, um, Buy property with. Yeah, buy property with, share the domestic labor or whatever. And my job is going to be um, how I make money, how I am, like, cared for from, like, a health perspective. Um, it is also going to be my passion. It is also going to fulfill me. Spiritually. I mean, it's, like, of spiritually and emotionally. And, and like, it, it's going to be my only source of friendships, my only source of, like, any kind of fulfillment, my only source of achievement. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's so many eggs in one basket and you're asking so much of yourself in that scenario. 
Yeah, and I feel... It, exactly. And it's, like, one of those situations where, like, it really only works out for, like, a, a ridiculously small portion of the population. Yeah. But we're all, like, fed these narratives over and over, especially because th- that percentage is often the people who, like, have the mic. And they're, like, you know... Yeah. It's always the fucking pop stars dream award speeches saying, follow your dreams. Or, like, the people... Of course it's going to work out for a few people. Like, yeah. of course, like, I mean, like, a, a monkey's going to eventually type Shakespeare, you know, whatever. Like, it's, like... <laughs> A, a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah, exactly. My favorite version. I love that expression. I love that expression. It's so, <laughs> it's, so it's incredible. It's amazing. It's it's so. You funny. know what's a shame what? that the person who came up with that isn't famous. It is true. This is how we know the value system's fucked. It is actually pretty brutal that like things are not uh, merit and talent don't actually factor in <laughs> most of the time. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, I was just gonna ask you like. I don't, I don't know if you want to go here yet, but, like, there's so much we could say about this, but, like, what do we do about it? Like, what's the answer? I mean, you know, it's, like, because it's, 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 you arguably cannot say, okay, um, on top of all those pressures that I'm feeling individually, how do I then find my own way out of this all by myself? You know, it's, like, how do, like, like, that's even harder in a way. So I'm just curious to think, like, just to ask you, like, what you think the answer is. I guess you wrote about this. Yeah, I mean, like, it's going to be vague, but basically, like, I think um, as a collective, we need to start, like, asking these questions, like, as a first step. I mean, I think this is the same thing that, like, abolitionists say about abolishing modern prisons and people are like what's the solution like every like murderers can be running free and it's like i'm just asking everybody to consider a different way because we're so lock and step in the other direction that like you know it's like we're not even debating whether this should exist we're just we're caught up in the budgets and the like way it's working and who belongs there and who doesn't instead of like asking like really core foundational questions which apparently i mean like when there was a stronger labor movement and stronger unions like a lot of the debates were part of the public co- uh, consciousness. Like, people were debating how many hours, it, like, you should work. Like, the eight-hour workday was an invention that happened in the 20th century, yeah. like, the five-day work week. Like, these were, these were like, wins by the labor movement. And, like, a lot of these questions were just part of the conversation more. So I think maybe my desire, or, like, what I think needs to happen first before, like, solutions are put on the table or voted on is just, like, for people to, including myself, I think it's just, like, a, an ongoing endeavor. But to start asking these questions and not assuming the way that we, you know, assume that, like, the government doesn't owe us anything in America. Like, start assume like, start questioning the role work plays in our lives and like whether the solution lies with us as individuals or if there's a problem with the the, right. the premise in the first place. And I don't think, and by the way, like I think there's a lot of power in individual change. Like I'm a huge, I'm, I'm like anybody who knows me, I'm the first person to like blame myself for everything. <laughs> I'm like various, I'm very like self-punishing and like, I always think it's up to me to be self-motivated and, like, I have yeah. to make the change. Like, it's up to me. Like, obviously, it's a huge part of, like, my individual belief system. But I, I think I'm just... And so I think that's valuable. Sure. And, like, if there's somebody who writes me and says, hey, I'm thinking of leaving my job. I've got this fellowship. It doesn't pay me much, but, like, I think I can make it work. I'm just afraid. Like, should I do it? I'm always going to yeah, be like, course, oh, my yeah. God, go for it. Like, on an individual level, I love that stuff. I love talking to individuals about it. It's actually interesting because I think, like, taking responsibility for one's life... I know that the conditions are very hard, but I think, like, taking responsibility for one's life is also, as Didion would argue, to go back to, like, the self-respect thing, is, like, a real foundational part of character. And, like, taking responsibility for, like, 
you know, a lot of this, um, there's a lot that you don't have a choice over, but there is, there, you do have a lot of choices and you do have agency. And I think if you forget about that and feel powerless, that's really, really difficult. So, yeah, I think that's so important, especially because we're told we have agency in the wrong area. So it's almost like, just like, we need to re, you know, instead of thinking like, I couldn't possibly leave this job. It's like, well, well, why? Like, is it because you think you need, like, Maybe you don't need as big of a budget to, like, keep up with the Joneses on Instagram as, like, you think you do. Like, maybe, like, that's just a really bad example, and maybe it's, like, condescending. But I'm even talking to myself, because sometimes it's, like, you don't think you can do something, but, like, you actually can. You just need to sort of rework your values and, like, reassess what these questions are really asking. And I think so, you know, I think on an individual level, there's so much, like, room for growth in how we think about these things in ourselves. But I think on a broader level, I mean, obviously I really believe in, like, universal healthcare and like I obviously I believe in just like basic like food and shelter being provided to everybody and for like the minimum wage to be a livable wage um basically like the income gap to be addressed taxes to be fairer and like even just those simple things that allow for um basically the fruits of everyone's labor to be more adequately distributed more visible yeah like it's just a starting place I think you spoke really well to like what we do collectively and individually and I think just maybe to add some stuff to like the individual side I think I think we all have two desires (laughs) maybe maybe all of us maybe not all of us but I think I think most people have a desire to be self-expressive in some way and a desire to contribute something meaningful to others and And like, those are arguably kind of divergent needs. Like one is all about agency and self-definition and separateness. And the other one is about like connection and union and community. And so they're, they're very like different, but I think, and I think I've definitely been on the side where I was getting neither of those things from my like professional work. Like I felt, um, I actually think a lot of anxiety comes from like trapped creativity with no outlet. And so that's like where like, you don't feel like you can express anything. That's kind of one. And then two is feeling like you're alone or maybe recognizing like the fragility of the world and like how, like how, I don't know, just like feelings of pervasive loneliness when you don't have a community. So I would say, try to find something that you can do to help alleviate both of those desires both of those needs and so like I would argue that the way to kind of fight against these pressures is to um create something it doesn't even have to be something big like even cooking dinner feels really good like doing something meaningful um like pouring yourself out creating something is almost always worthwhile like and these are things that you do to do them they're they're not things that you do to get something like um like sports is like get points, like business is like get money. You know what I mean? Like those are like, that's their purpose. Whereas like, what's like, like writing is get what, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Like what is like, what is like friendship? It's like, it's just good for the sake of it. And I think like pursuing and putting like a primary, making those things primary in your life is going to help to some degree. And I'm not saying you necessarily need to pursue those things for money or for like, they're just worth doing in and of themselves. Like, laughter like what like like they're not even they're not trying to get you something yeah I mean and even recognize that's so well said like even recognizing actually that those are the most meaningful things in life totally those are and those are always there and and likewise like if you can then like like find people who feel similarly like 
I think one of the hardest things is existing and having all these thoughts and feelings and feeling like you're in a bubble and being around friends who maybe like don't even have these thoughts, like are totally bought in on like the workist culture or are completely like are not questioning these things. Like I'm not saying like end those friendships, but seek out people. It's really alienating. And I've, and I've been through that myself. And like, I think part of the reason why we became kind of fast friends was because I was like, oh my God, she's thinking about the stuff that I'm thinking about. And like, I think if you can seek out those, those friends, friendships, or just like relationships, that's great. And like making, becoming close with people in your community, whatever that looks like. And uh, like community is thrown around a lot. And like, I just don't think that like corporate family, corporate community, like that's bullshit. It's bullshit. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's just, it doesn't. It's manipulative. It's manipulative. It's emotional. It's emotional hostage exchange. It's like, you can't like. you have no power in that dynamic like and so I think or you're you're relatively powerless if you're kind of on the bottom of the totem pole so I would argue that like the more you can get out of that structure and kind of like keep money in its proper box relative to the rest of your life the pursuit of money yeah yeah the pursuit of money makes sense to fulfill your material needs but like keeping it in check is a hugely important thing and and actually was a conscious decision for myself. I was like, okay, like I'm kind of bowing out here of the rat race a tiny bit, you know, like I'm, I'm taking my foot off the gas and that's like scary as someone who has tried to be kind of an achievement robot for a lot of my twenties. Like, I think you kind of need to make that shift and you will be happier for it, you know? So easy to say, easy to say, um, as like a white collar worker, but I, I do yeah. think that, and, and and of course, like it's almost not worth it. I mean, it's worth acknowledging that, but I think like in this particular case, what I'm saying, I think applies like across like human <laughs> needs across the like whole spectrum. It's like, you know, find a way to kind of express yourself and it doesn't have to be for money. And, and I think also finding people who, you know, help you feel less alone. Like those two things are, it's a very powerful combination. And like, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think they go together. I mean, they certainly have for totally. me with, with writing. I mean, for I think, sure. I think there's, I think there's a difference between like the actual work I do in my community, like for mutual aid or stuff like that. than like me writing and having people be like, this really spoke to me, which is like obviously a little one-sided. It's not exactly the same, but I do think that a lot of times like connection and like, finding your place like which might kind of feel like self-expression is sort of are sometimes the same pursuit and we just are so focused on the former that yeah. we are on the kind of our self-expression that we forget it can be often found in like connecting with other people and also like just generally re-examining how we think of um the pursuit of fulfillment in general like you know back in the day I was so ashamed I mean I wouldn't say so ashamed but I was a little bit just like bashful about saying I worked in HR. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't think it felt representative of me. But now I think if I met someone who worked in just kind of a random job that they didn't feel really represented them, but they were like a really interesting person, yeah, I would really think that was amazing. And I think that totally. like... Cultivating curiosity is I think also like a big, like I think a big part of what makes people happy and fulfilled throughout their lives like I think it's a key thing for aging gracefully and feel you know feeling like you're engaged with the world and stuff is like continue to feed your curiosity and your interests because like that's forever like you can do that as long as you live you know so 
Um, totally agree with you. And I, I yeah. would also just add maybe... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Were you gonna say oh, I was just going to say one other thing to what you said, which was just like, I know that it's hard to say... De-emphasize that when you're asked to give so much time towards it. I think that's like one thing that's has to be acknowledged is that like you're giving so much time to your job. Like, I mean, most people, most people are working full time. That's at least 40 hours a week. A lot of people are working a lot more than that. It's a tall order to be like, just accept that this is how you pay your bills. And it's not the center of your world. It's like, well, it's the center of most of my waking hours. (laughs) Yeah. So sorry, but I care about whether I like it. And I do understand that. Totally. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think like one other, maybe two other thoughts, you're not paid to care. And I know that that sounds ridiculous because when I was told to care less about this, I was like, that it makes no sense. Like, I was like, you can't just tell me to care less. But I would say like, um, you can find ways, creative ways to maybe de-emphasize the role, the prime, the primacy maybe of work in your life. Like you can, there are wa- there are some ways to set boundaries, but you do there is a trade off that like people might not like you for it, <laughs> um, which is really hard yeah. to do. Yeah, and um, like you said, there is still yeah. agency that you can recognize whether it's yeah. like moving to a company where or a job where like you find it more emotionally like less emotionally abusive. Like maybe right. there's it's that like maybe they, yeah maybe yeah. it's like maybe it's just simply easier. Maybe it, yeah. you like the your boss more, or maybe it's like in a city you like more at a company that's doing something that feels like marginally less soul sucking because they're like they donate a portion of this to that or like they're making a sex toy that's like embracing of different bodies or like whatever insert like slight slight feeling of like contributing that maybe you're looking for without it being like I have to quit and move to this place even though I don't really want to do that totally and I would say that um I could talk about this literally forever. I know, me too. This has been my struggle. This has been my struggle for, (laughs) (laughs) hashtag my struggle for the last like five years. But I would say that maybe one other thing to keep in mind, and this may seem a little like therapeutic or out of left field, but like, I would say that anger is a really productive emotion. Um, It's like self-protective and like, it'll help you figure out like where you feel like you are, you have been wronged. So channel that and listen to that and if like things are outraging you at work like like listen to that voice like it's valid and like Mm. you can then take action like the thing that the antidote to like anxiety is like action right or like or like you know like taking action in any way helps so if you're feeling like completely at like your wits end and you're you're angry like like write that stuff down and pay attention to it and maybe see, and like then take action against it and you will feel better. Like you really will. And that's kind of, that kind of gets to like the, um, the like self agency responsibility thing. Like I think, you know, there, that is really true. You, you can look out for yourself and you can protect yourself in certain ways, not in every way. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like undermine what we've been saying about like the collective and like how it's unfair because it is, but there are certain ways that you can make it better for yourself. And I think yeah. like I would, I would listen to that angry voice too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, thinking about what role works, work plays in your life and how that's, or how that's affecting your emotional relationship with it could also help. Totally. 
The Atlantic ran basically a follow-up piece to Derek Thompson's essay about workism where a bunch of people responded and like gave some different viewpoints. And one um, woman responded, and I just want to read what she said. It's two sentences, but I thought it was brilliant. She said, I'm so grateful that someone warned me 50 years ago that the messy process of creating my life would not be cured by work devotion, that I had to create my own order. That advice helped me contribute to more causes than my employers and to weather the disappointments of the workplace. Yeah, totally. That sums it up. Yeah, that sums it up. Isn't that so well put? Like, contribute to more causes than my employers. So, like, I think one lie that's, like, really serving to the bosses is that, like, we're a family, we're all in this together, we're all pursuing the same goals of basically, like, me getting rich. Which is typically the boss's goal. It's so funny. It's so hilarious, actually, (laughs) when you think about like how it actually works. It's like we're all on a team. And like, I, not to keep, I keep plugging my old pod, but like we talked about this in the first episode around like the language around work and like implying that it's a team. It's like, that's just ridiculous. It's like, it implies that there's no kind of like hierarchical structure. Like, no one calls anyone their boss anymore. It's always like, you're a coach or you're like a, you know, it's, it's like there is a hierarchy and the boss is benefiting. Well, and it's run like a dictatorship. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, it's not for you. Like you're getting paid. Like, like, I mean, when I look back on my old, I mean, like, like starting positions at a lot of these consulting companies, like you're making less than minimum wage, arguably based on, um, how many hours you're working a week relative to your salary. So like, that sounds crazy, but it's like, yeah, you are being, your labor is being exploited. Like whether or not, I mean, it's, it's credentialing you in a way. So, okay, whatever. But like, you're still, you are providing your labor to the people who are like making the real money. Like, let's just like, let's just call it what it is here. You know, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Exploitation. Yeah. And we're so caught up in it, right? Like, we're so told that, like, working more makes you better. Like, being a really hard worker, like, working extra hours makes you good. It's like, who does this, who does this framework serve? Makes you a loser. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I mean, obviously, I've been that person so many times, and then you realize, like, wait, whose goals am I pursuing? And, like, what am I giving up to pursue for someone else's goal that's, like, really capital-based? And I was, when I read this interview recently, um, a few weeks ago, that I I linked, and I don't know that many people clicked on it, but I wanted to, like, shout it from the rooftops. Um, but it was this interview about how modern offices and corporations are run like dictatorships. And at first you're like, what do you mean send by that? Send me this. I want to see this. Yeah. I have to send it to you. You'll love it. But it was basically about like, if you think of the government, um, the reason that like we are, the budgets and their decisions are so privy to us is because like we've agreed that that they should be public. Yeah. Like a dictator, meanwhile, will hide all the reasons they're making certain decisions. You don't have, you're not privy to the budget. You're, you have no rights, really. They have all the power. Yeah. And maybe they'll believe that you want them because they'll say, like, you know, you have patriotism or, like, you know, they can say whatever they want to make you believe in them. But that's exactly how workplaces are run. Like, you don't really have much power. They can, they can, um, basically excommunicate you from the little country that is your workplace at any time. You don't really have any rights. Um, Like, they are not going to tell you why they're making decisions. You have no say in the decisions. Like, if they decide to merge with another country, aka company, or they decide to, like, 
you know, excommunicate half the staff by, via layoff. Like, you just have no say. Like, you don't even right. know what's going on. They make all the decisions. There's one person who's hoarding the wealth and the power at the top. And, like, we just have completely accepted this framework. Totally. Like, yes, this is how work goes. The boss says what goes. I don't ask a question. I just smile. Like, what? Right, right, exactly. And it's also, like, it's also like um, a lot of these corporate boards or, you know, C-suite kind of executives will sort of hint at uh, something that they call transparency in like an all hands meeting where they simply inform you of the decisions that have been made. <laughs> it's like, and you're like, oh, thank With you. PR thanks for telling me, right? Like, thanks for just like sort of skirting around. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's also just like, there's so many nefarious things that happen. Like, also, wait, one more thing on the dictatorship. Yeah. Like, we don't choose the leader either, right? We have no say. We don't yeah, have no, any no. say in the vote. hiring. Yeah, no, no, you don't vote for anybody. So like, they say they're they say they're being transparent, but often it's just a PR spin. You know, if they decide next year we're going to change our insurance plans so that it's more expensive for all of you, and actually now your benefits are worse, which has happened to me fairly recently. Yeah, um, that, that's happened. That happened at a company that I know that will remain nameless. Yes, you you have no say. <laughs> on, on second thought. <laughs> Yeah, like, and you, you have no say in that decision, right? Even though nothing no. about your work changed. If anything, you could still be working long hours. Like, you could, yeah. you know, you don't have any say in, in like, a getting, uh, like, really in anything about your job. Eventually, too, it just, it ends up just all falling to you. It's like, I mean, not to personalize, but, like, this was Thanksgiving week this past week, and I worked the whole holiday because who's going to do it? There's no one beneath me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, me. Like, and that's and that's the case that so many people find themselves in is like, who's doing the work? Like, just keep asking yourself that. Who's the one actually doing the work and who's making the decisions and who's benefiting from from the work of others? And like who's you know, you per, you t- spend 40 hours on a presentation and your boss gives the presentation. It's like, OK, so who's really who's benefiting there? Is that really fair? Right. You know, there's a lot. I mean, it's like totally I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, and there's a system, I think there's a a communal nature to work in general, but the point is that, like, it's not, the benefits aren't equally distributed, or even remotely fairly distributed. No, and then, of course, people climb the ranks through the system, and then they... They were exploited, so they feel now entitled to their their position where they exploit others because it happened to them. And, like, that's distasteful, but it is understandable. You it's know, like it's why like people don't you, want college to be free. They're like, I worked so hard. Well, I right, right, right. Or, or like to pay for healthcare. They don't want healthcare to be free because they're like, oh, I pay for healthcare. It's like, well, okay, but <laughs> like, I don't even understand that argument. But anyway, we don't need to get all back into that. I know, I know. Sorry. Oh my God, Catherine, we've been talking for an hour and a half. What the hell? Okay, wait. <laughs> I just we... was jaw on the floor when I looked at the time. Oh my God. Yeah. Should we, um, talk a little bit about relationships? Do you want to? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I definitely can't release. I don't think I can release something that's longer than an hour and a half. So it would require us cutting something. Well, no, I mean, you can cut like some of this out. I won't be offended. Whatever is like the boring parts. Okay. Well, let's not talk for too much longer though, because it's going to be really hard for me to decide. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Totally. Whatever, whatever you think is best. It's your pod. Well, why don't you like, I remember, let me pull up that question. Oh, yeah. What were your initial thoughts on whether people in a relationship can be wrong for each other and how much agency we have in basically, like, making a relationship work? Okay, I'm going to leave us on a little cliffhanger there. 
If you want to hear Catherine's answer, tune in next week. I think our conversation about relationships was really good and um, kind of get into some of the relationship stuff, maybe even the specifics of my last relationship, which I'm asked about kind of a lot and haven't really gotten into previously. Um, So if you're into that topic, don't miss it. And also look out for my newsletter this coming Sunday because there's a little announcement in it. So want to make sure you catch that so you're not confused by any changes. And I'm just going to leave you with the final line in Derek Thompson's piece that speaks to work that I found really profound. He's talking about a sort of alternative approach to work that is essentially focused on decentering it. Quote, it is the belief, the faith even, that work is not life's product, but its currency. What we choose to buy with it is the ultimate project of living. Okay, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Bye.